Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Yelena Sofronievich. Beijing 2022 was the first Winter Olympics to rely almost exclusively on fake snow, with 430 snow cannons and 800 Olympic swimming pools of water. China concocted a winter wonderland for its athletes, but one with great repercussions for the environment. Sochi 2014 also used 90 and 80% fake snow. That's the same as 1,000 football pitches plus plane loads of pink Himalayan salt to keep everything gritty. But is it possible to make snow sports more sustainable? And will we even be able to have a Winter Olympics in the future? I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr Madeline Orr, a sports ecologist based in the Institute of Sport Business at Loughborough University London and the founder and co-director of the Sport Ecology Group. Hello, Madeline. Hey, thanks for having me. Since Beijing hosted the Summer Olympics in 2008, China has become the world's top contributing country to climate change. Still, Beijing claimed that the 2022 Winter Olympics would be the greenest and cleanest games ever, using 100% renewable energy. Was that the case? It looks like it was the case that they did use green energy, tapping into Zhuangzhengju's grid, which is in theory, one of the biggest independent green grids in the world, producing roughly the same amount of green energy as like the 10th biggest country in terms of energy production. So it's really incredible what they've been able to do with it. That said, energy is just one component of a games. And obviously, there's a water footprint, there's a travel footprint, there's all these other aspects. So with respect to energy, they've done a phenomenal job. But there's no getting around this water footprint and the biodiversity issues, and I'm sure we'll get into that, but it's really hard to say it's a green games when there's these other question marks around it. And the International Olympic Committee acknowledged during China's bid process that the country had, quote, minimal annual snowfall. Surely that's a foundational requirement for a winter Games. So why did China win in the first place over Kazakhstan? Yeah, you'd think it would be a requirement, but it's not at the moment. They do have to present a sustainability plan, but they don't necessarily have to have a perfect climate to host. And so this is something that we might see change in the future after the backlash these games are getting. But at the moment, that's not necessarily a huge factor. They do report on what their climate is, but if there's a way around it, The IOC will usually accept that. In this case, the IOC went with Beijing over Almaty because Beijing promised to bring 300 million new participants to winter sport. 
And that is a very attractive figure to the winter sports world, right? This is their biggest marquee event. And it only comes around every four years. If you can galvanize the population's interest in two weeks and get a bunch of people interested in winter sport, grow the market, there's a really interesting economic argument for that. But again, there's a very problematic environment question around this as well. So more focused on the sustainability of sport rather than the sustainability of the environment. Exactly right. Now, back in 2004, former International Olympic Committee member Dick Pound admitted that he voted to award that year's Summer Games to Rome because he feared that Athens air pollution could cause serious health problems for its competitors. I spent one week in Beijing in summer 2019, and I never once saw the sun through the heavy smog in the city. Is pollution a key consideration when it comes to competitions? Yes, across all outdoor sports, air pollution and air quality is something that absolutely should be top of mind because it does hinder performance. If you are competing in poor air quality conditions, it can inhibit your capacity to breathe to the extent that you would need to in order to hit your O2 max, which is kind of your peak performance in aerobic activity. And so especially outdoor long distance competitions, it's really important that the air is clean. And this was something we've seen in previous events. We saw it in Beijing 2008. We saw in Athens. We're now seeing it in Beijing for this games, particularly in the mountain region where air quality is not great. But, you know, it's one of those pieces that often gets lost in the mix. People aren't thinking about air quality when they think about sports. How have air quality problems shaped the conditions for athletes during these games? So at these Olympics, the air quality has been slightly above what we would consider safe. You have to keep in mind, though, that what we would consider safe in terms of the WHO's standards, are not designed for athletes. Mm -hmm. They're designed for the average person going for a casual walk, getting to work, picking up their kid at school. It's not necessarily considering the fact that an athlete might be consuming a whole lot more air when they exert themselves, right? If you go for a run, you're exerting yourself, you're breathing a lot more air, you're breathing it more deeply into your lungs, and so you can actually capture more polluted content than if you're just going for a walk or resting outside. So athletes are more at risk when it comes to air quality issues because they're exerting themselves. It's kind of the opposite of what you'd normally think, right? An athlete is less likely to get sick because they're so fit. Actually, in this case, it puts them more at risk. And Athletics Canada's Professor Michael Kohler argues that we should change where and when we train based on our exposure to pollutants. Are some sports, perhaps outdoor endurance events, like you've suggested, more affected than others? Yes, but I think it's one of those pieces where, you know, when we think about what sports are most affected, we think about the competition length. And so a marathon runner or a cyclist is outside and exposed for prolonged periods of time. But the truth is, if you're a sprinter or if you're in a short-term outdoor event, you are training outside for long periods of time. The training periods actually are quite similar. So if you're a footballer, for example, or a cricketer, you're going to be training several hours outdoors in the same way that a marathon person would, right? And so it does matter. Like There is an impact in terms of the competition length, but really we have to also be thinking about the training periods as well. And that's where it doesn't make as much of a difference because most outdoor athletes are training outdoors on a regular basis anyway. Now, the Chinese government has pumped billions into cloud seeding technology, which for listeners involves firing silver iodide filled rockets to clear the sky and cut pollution ahead of its big political events. Is this kind of weather controlling tech new and where else has it been used with respect to sports? 
It's not new. It is new-ish to sports in the sense that typically it's been used in, for example, the Emirates where they use cloud seeding to ensure that some of their crops won't fail in periods of drought or periods of extreme heat. You know, in the past year, they've seen heat above 122 degrees Celsius in some days, which is really unhealthy for everybody involved. And so cloud seeding in that case is a health measure. It's also in the Beijing case, it hasn't been used prolifically. It's been used on particular days and events in order to produce artificially clear skies and lower temperatures and then cleaner air. It is a technique that works. That's the really hard part to grapple with is it does actually work. It's just not necessarily the most environmentally friendly. So you do get the results you're looking for at a cost. And that's the piece that we haven't quite figured out yet. It hasn't been prolific in sports. We may see some of this in Qatar in the fall, depending on what that weather looks like. It's unlikely it would be rockets as used in China. It's more likely to just be mounted onto planes, which is what they do in the Emirates. So it would be that kind of similar technology, but a very similar process of essentially dispersing silver iodine, stimulating rain, basically, which helps to clear up some of that air pollution and humidity, and that alleviates some of the heat and pollution issues. Do you think there's a general tendency towards these short-term environmental fixes that actually have longer term sustainability repercussions. There is, yeah. And I think part of it is it's a health question in a lot of cases. You know, you can't have people working outside if it's 100 degrees. That doesn't work. You know, there's a certain point where I understand why certain things have to be the way they are. However, we have to really think critically about what is going to be tenable in the future. And some of the solutions, these stopgap measures that we have to alleviate extreme heat is not going to be sufficient. We can't just continue to seed clouds every day and then hope that we break that heat, right? So it's going to be a case of potentially mass migration, something that is having to be explored. It's going to be a case of larger scale adaptation, and we'll see where that leads. Now, 20,000 trees had to be transplanted in order to make way for the game's ski runs, not to mention the animals that live among them. How do sports generally impact biodiversity? So this is a question that I've just started asking in the last couple of years, and it's blowing my mind how little this question gets asked in general, because when we think about sports, we're not often thinking about the environments in which they take place. And people who are responsible for managing sports teams typically have a thousand things to do. And taking care of biodiversity is typically not on the list. In this case, we're seeing a ski alpine event that was built in a place that used to be a natural reserve. In the Songsheng Reserve, they used to actually not have anybody in there. It was just scientists who are there to monitor alpine meadows and rare species. And they've essentially mowed it to the ground, a whole section of it, in order to make room for the ski resort. And they've justified that by saying, okay, well, we're just going to move the boundary of that nature reserve. And that's what they've done. But in the process, they've eliminated a whole bunch of biodiversity. And this is not unusual, right? Wherever you see a ski run, there used to be trees there. Wherever you look at a golf course, there used to be something a little more natural in that space. And the more we get to artificial spaces, the more original biodiversity loss there is, right? And so over time, you can reintegrate biodiversity. You can replant certain native plants. This is something that Wimbledon, for example, does really, really well, is creating this English garden space around the whole facility. And it really, first of all, changes the whole vibe of being there, but also really takes care of the bees and the plants and the birds and everything else that's in the space. But that's uncommon. And it'll be really interesting to see what sports do with this moving forward. The United Nations Environment Program has a Sport for Nature initiative that's just kicking off now. And we should be seeing a report out this summer on kind of what's the biodiversity question around sport. And so look out for that in the summer just to see more on this question. And there should be some better answers baked into that report. What you were talking about there with respect to Wimbledon seemed very much like an effort to reintegrate nature back into artificial sporting environments. 
What examples are there of nature being baked into the design of new sporting environments today? For example, at St. Andrews, I was just up there last week, they have mostly natural grasses in the space. And that ensures that the typical biome that would exist there in terms of birds that would feed on bugs in that space and the soil composition would be very close to what it naturally would be. And that has been maintained over hundreds of years. And that's a really kind of unique case as well, but somewhere where they have ensured that wherever they've moved away from the natural environment in order to put a new hole or reshape the course, they've also reintegrated natural grass. So we do see it happen. It's less common than moving away from nature, but hopefully we see more movement towards nature in future. Now, these issues aren't just limited to winter sports. As you mentioned earlier, Qatar rescheduled the 2022 World Cup from June to November in order to avoid Doha's intense summer heat. It's designed cooling systems across its stadiums to make conditions playable for footballers. Where else are we seeing natural conditions being altered to fit the needs of athletes? Just about everywhere, to be honest. There are a number of kind of back-end solutions being implemented, including in places like UK UK Premier Premier League League Soccer, Soccer, right? right? We see under the turf, there's typically heating technologies that ensure that nothing freezes and also that they are able to collect the water off of the turf if there's too much of it or pooling and they're able to maintain that better. So heating pads essentially are under most turfs that you would see. So that's a common one in downhill skiing, you see snow production. Same with cross-country skiing. That's a common one. In some events like half pipe, it's entirely artificial. That whole entire pile of snow is artificial basically every time around the world. We now have things like surfing pools. <laughs> like There's just some really interesting versions of what would be a very natural sport taking place in very unnatural conditions. Yeah, so those would be the big ones. But I think, you know, the more we move towards a greater awareness of climate change, the more we're going to start to take stock of where we're manipulating the environment in order to provide competitive and safe competition and making sure that we protect the environment a little more without compromising the safety, potentially compromising the competition. But again, it just means it's a different form of competitiveness. And there's obviously so many different environmental trade-offs to think about there that I imagine it's impossible to decide if any one sport is more environmentally damaging than another. But on the flip side of that, are there any sports really that we can claim with confidence are net zero or carbon neutral or don't contribute as much perhaps to environmental damage? So there's only one sport that has been certified as net zero from its inception, which is Formula E, but that's it. I mean, it's a really hard question because ultimately the presence of any sport or sport event is less sustainable than it not being or is, you know what I mean? Like is less environmentally friendly than the alternative, which would be to not have the event and not have the sport. Mm -hmm. But obviously then we're foregoing all the social benefits, health benefits, all these other things that moms and dads put their kid into sport for. And that's a societal value that we've recognized now in most countries for a very long time, something that we recognize and value. And so the question is not, do we eliminate sports or which sports are worse than others? I think the question is, where are the biggest opportunities to improve. And there's some really interesting work on that with the Sport for Climate Action Framework at the United Nations, about 300 signatories now. And then there's a race to zero campaign among sports organizations signing on to have their emissions by 2030 and cut them completely by 2040. We also see athletes speaking out on this, which is really actually quite interesting and is pushing the needle, I think, more than anything else, because they're the primary stakeholder, I would say, in terms of it's actually their safety and competitiveness that are being protected with a lot of these artificial solutions. So we'll see what happens. I think it's really hard to answer that question. And like China, Qatar also claims that its World Cup will have the smallest carbon footprint yet. Do you think, after everything you've said about under-pitch heating, that that could be even possible? 
no is the short answer. <laughs> but I mean, look, I think that there's a lot of really interesting solutions coming out of Qatar in terms of modular facilities, right, that can be built up and then taken down and the different pieces of the facility distributed to like other smaller sports facilities, clubs, etc. around their country. They're pioneering some really interesting transport technology. They've got some cool stuff going on with cooling. It's not sustainable in the end, ultimately. Like no matter how sustainable your stadium is, if you have thousands of people flying into one small place and consuming a ton of product over a certain amount of days and then leaving again on international flights, there's no version of that at the moment that's sustainable, partially because we just don't have that air travel technology yet. And partially because Qatar was not designed to accommodate that many people. They are doing their best. They really are doing their best given kind of an impossible situation. But I don't know that I can say that that's like a sustainable event. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, coming back to the Winter Olympics, February is a particularly smoggy time in northern China. And Tortoise's net zero expert, Barney McIntyre, suggests that if the Winter Games are to survive, they have to move either further north, further south or further up in the calendar. Is he right? Yes. And I think what's interesting about that, too, is that you're opening a few different pieces in terms of potential new geographies, right? So if you go into January for the Olympics, and the big question here is actually about the Paralympics. It's not even the Olympics. February is smoggy, and we're kind of on the downswing of winter in most places. But March is worse. (laughs) And so you have to consider that this is a bundle. It comes together. So if we're going to move one, we're moving the other as well. Mm -hmm. So the benefit would be you move the Olympics to January, you move the Paralympics to February, and all of a sudden there's a number of resorts that actually do have tenable conditions to host much longer into the future. And we start to have a bit of a more dynamic proposition in terms of what's possible. That said, it's not a perfect silver bullet. The big question around winter sports actually has nothing to do with winter sports. It has to do with how fast can we curb emissions overall, because that's going to have the biggest impact on future snow. Now, China estimates that around 222 million litres of water were used to create the necessary amount of fake snow. Given that Beijing is one of the world's most water-scarce cities, what does this reveal about the unequal allocation of resources in sports and society more widely? So for a very long time, FIFA and the International Olympic Committee have come into cities and essentially taken over everything, right? FIFA, when they come into a city, they can rewrite your local tax law and have certain taxes not go to your government and instead go to FIFA. They can rewrite the rules around beverages, for example. Like they're going to an Arabic country, a Muslim country this year, and they can rewrite laws around beverages and what's acceptable in terms of sales. And they totally take over the way things work. 
The Olympics is actually quite similar. When an Olympics comes to town, there is a whole lot of disruption around how everything works, how public transit works, what roads people have access to, all these pieces around, you know, what stores are open and to whom and at what times and what they're allowed to sell and what they're not allowed to sell and all these other things to protect sponsorship money, to protect broadcasting, all these other pieces. It's very complicated. It's not surprising at all that this is starting to come into play with the environment, right? And like the Olympics is and has always had an outsized impact on the local city for better or for worse, most cases actually for worse. There's not a single Olympics that's come out in the black since the 50s. They've all lost a lot of money. They notoriously are overrun. So we've started to lose the economic argument. We've started to lose the social argument with all the protests around them. And we don't have much of an enviro argument either. It's very messy, I think. But it's not surprising that the Olympics, like FIFA, has some big environmental questions to start tackling very soon. And it's interesting you talk about Olympics being in the black. I listened to a fascinating podcast about Sadio Oval 1984, which was surprisingly one of the few, I, I think it just broke even, or at least it said so in, in the podcast. But the Olympics was really used as a means to try and launch Bosnia's fledgling ski industry as part of Yugoslavia. And Xi Jinping hopes to use the 2022 Winter Olympics to do something similar and launch China's $1 trillion ski industry with hundreds of resorts that would be dependent on this fake snow year round. Is that sustainable? And who will win out if so? No, it's not sustainable. <laughs> and there's no version of it that is, right? I think that's the other question is like the International Olympic Committee, like National Olympic Committees, are in a weird spot right now because for so long the mission statement has been grow sport participation, period. That's it. That's the priority. Secondarily, take care of the finances and the sponsors and everything else, right? Now we're saying, oh, and also be environmentally sustainable. And a lot of them have actually committed to this. The IOC has environmental sustainability as its third pillar alongside sport and culture. Like that's supposed to be the headline. And it consistently fails because it's making promises towards two of them around culture and sport at the expense of, in some cases, sustainability. There's no version of winter sport in China for 300 million people in perpetuity that is not heavily reliant on resources they don't have and potentially indoor ski facilities. They're the fastest growing market of indoor ski facilities, indoor arenas. They don't have the cooling technology to do that on a mass scale. It's just a crazy proposition. So I think there's a big question we have to start asking of, I think we can all accept that everybody has a right to participate in sport and have access. Yes, but to all sports? That's the question we have to start asking. Now, Loughborough University's Slippery Slope report, fantastic name, found <laughs> that just 10 of the 20 Winter Olympics venues used since 1924 will still have the climate and snowfall levels necessary to host an event by 2050. Do you think it still makes sense to host the Games at all in the face of global warming? Yes, but I don't know that it makes sense to host the Games in their current format. So we think about the Olympics and we think about huge stadiums, big, big opening and closing ceremonies, hundreds of people in the stands. We now have not seen that for two Olympics in a row, right? Tokyo and Beijing have gone ahead without fans. I think that's stretching the imagination a little around what's possible in terms of a smaller scale event. I think there's a version of the Olympics that can go forth in the future and have much smaller facilities because the fans that are in the stands are friends and family of the athletes competing so that they get to be there and support them, but only local fans outside of that. And that would shrink the need for these huge stadiums. And all of a sudden, you can have 
a small city hosting winter events. And that stretches the geography of where we can go like crazy. In the past, the cities that we've been to are the ones that have big hosting capacity, right? Like big with a capital B-I-G because it is so many people that have to come into town and the number of hotel rooms you have to have and the number of restaurants and, 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 right? If we go to smaller cities in the Alps, in parts of Eastern Europe, in parts of North America, all of a sudden we have way, way, way more options. So that study that you referenced explored previous host cities, but that's in a version of the Olympics where you need to be able to accommodate way, way, way more people. We need to in future if we change the scope a little bit to ensure the athletes have a great experience, their friends and family are there to support them, the media is there in a big way, but the majority of the spectacle is happening for people watching from home, wherever they are in the world. Do you think that's likely? What do you think are some of the barriers from stopping that? I think it's becoming more likely because of COVID. I think that the marketing teams around professional sports especially have done a really cool job of improving the product for fans watching at home and finding new revenue streams among sponsors that allows them to produce that and take a hit on those ticket sales a little bit but make up for it elsewhere. So I think that like increasingly it's becoming possible. Right now, if I went to the IOC and said that, they'd probably laugh at me. (laughs) Finally, how do artificial conditions change the nature and the competition of the sport itself? So that depends on the sport, right? In most sports, athletes are training at least part-time in artificial conditions. So if you think about rowing, for example, they're on rowing machines a huge chunk of the year because they can't be outside or it's raining or there's a storm surge or whatever, right? If you're in a place like the Caribbean and you're a track athlete, track and field, the athletics teams can't compete for huge stretches of the fall because of hurricanes. So depending on where you are, there's going to be bad weather days that prevent you from competing in the ideal condition. And we've had artificial solutions, indoor track facilities, rowing machines, wave pools. We've had all this stuff for years to accommodate that. The question is just like, how much more are we going to do? So does it affect the competition? Yes. But the athletes are kind of used to it at this point, particularly with artificial snow, because more and more, that's what they're relying on at resorts kind of around the world. And I noticed this year that British freestyle skier Laura Donaldson said that man-made snow is more dangerous for athletes. Why is that the case? And if so, is there an argument that perhaps returning to more natural solutions might actually be safer for athletes too? Yeah, so that is a fairly common complaint among athletes that it's more dangerous. The research actually so far doesn't bear that out, but not because they're lying. They're probably telling the truth. The surface of artificial snow is harder. And therefore, when you fall on it, you risk a harder injury. It's the same thing with artificial turf versus natural grass. Turf hurts more if you fall on it, right? So that's where that argument is coming from. It also tends to be slicker and faster. And therefore, when you're falling, you're falling at harder velocity into a harder surface. So it's kind of a double whammy, so to speak. The problem is that when researchers have collected data on injuries in snow sports, typically they're not collecting information on what the quality of the snow was at the injury site for a number of reasons, but the big one being typically at most mountains, you have a combination of natural snow and artificial snow, and it's impossible to tease out, oh, this was 70% artificial, 30% natural or whatever at a given spot. It's also impossible to tease out that one particular fall from another because there's so much individual variation around what the athletes are doing, where it was in the course, all these other pieces. They do collect information on visibility. They do collect information on temperature, but they have not collected information on snow quality because we haven't had artificial snow 100% before. So this games is a bit of a test case. We've seen some crazy ski outs, a high level of did not finish in their races. We've seen a number of injuries as well. And Part of that could be chalked up to the conditions. But again, statistically, it's really hard to say yes or no. That's the case because that data doesn't exist yet. But hopefully 
moving forward, we'll get that data. Dr. Madeleine Orr, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp? You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. This is Yelena Sofronievich sliding out of the bunker. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Yelena Sofronievich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>